the complicated yet simple message that we've learned from studying DNA for the last 50 years, right? It's just that you have basically what you need. It's just, do you have what you need in your environment outside of your body to help your body to live out its potential? What does it mean to be intelligent on a genetic level? The answer may surprise you. And that is what this week's guest is here to discuss. Dr. Rena Bliss is a professor of sociology at Rutgers University who has spent more than a decade researching misconceptions about the nature of intelligence. And her new book, Rethinking Intelligence, A Radical New Understanding of Our Human Potential, comes out today. We are going to be busting some misconceptions around IQ, standardized testing, and we're going to offer some solutions and suggestions for how parents can navigate the traditional education system that may or may not be supporting each unique child's needs. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Today, we have an amazing guest. Dr. Rena Bliss is here to talk to us all about intelligence, the mind, our genetics, and I'm so excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So so you just came out with this new book, Rethinking Intelligence. You are, you've done tons of research on, you know, DNA, genetics. Um, I, I'm so curious, like what made you think to write this book? Why is this so interesting? And you know, what's your, what's the story? Well, um, I, I've been doing research into the social implications of DNA for quite some time. And, um, I actually began studying kind of the relationship between our DNA and, our concepts of human variation, human diversity, and on a collective level, like, you know, what people say in the general culture, but also like, you know, how that was affecting how people saw themselves and thought about themselves and talked about themselves Mm -hmm. and family, ancestry, all of that kind of thing. So I had been studying that and, and I noticed that there was this genomic kind of science rising up to get involved in this debate about like, how different are we? Are we really that different? And, um, and so I, I found that there were a lot of scientists who are pushing back against the notion of racial differences. And so Mm -hmm. there are a lot of scientists who wanted to use their science to prove that these were really bad narratives and that we needed to change the narratives. And it was a a really cool thing to see like all of these people mapping the human genome and all this excitement around like kind of the early two thousands around, um, you know, kind of dispelling these myths about fundamental differences and superiority and inferiority. But then at the same time, a lot of the scientists who were 
who are kind of leading the charge, um, we're turning towards studying the relationship between genes and environments. And that was really fuzzy. That was something that people were having trouble making sense of, even the geneticists themselves. And so um, one of the things that I saw happening was, um, was there was a new kind of movement within genetics to study behavior, but not just behavior in general, but specific things like how far you got in school, um, mm. whether you ended up, you know, committing crimes and going to prison. Um, also things like whether you were, um, a liberal or a conservative and, Ooh, so interesting. Yeah, and all of these really interesting social behaviors were, were coming kind of under the microscope. And so, um, one of the things that people were also studying and trying to f- figure out if there's a genetic kind of component to it um, and what the genes, you know, associated with said behavior were, it was IQ. So intelligence IQ. Um, and it's actually been a really big area of research now um, that it's, you know, it's developed into this really um, big area of research within that kind of subfield of genetics that looks at behavior. So I, I was interested, you know, in it from a scientific standpoint, but also because I personally felt and feel that I have had negative experiences with intelligence testing. And I've been one of these people who's, you know, kind of been moved through a system that has really um, valued aptitude testing, standardized testing, um, and has only increasingly so, um, you know, been featuring these kinds of um, intelligence uh, tests and uh, very, like, very limited and narrow definitions of intelligence, you know, at the center of education, at the center of our, you know, academic um, experiences. Mm -hmm. And So I, from a personal standpoint, was also interested in, you know, what are we about to tell ourselves about our potential? What are we about to tell ourselves? What are we going to learn once we get all of this, you know, all of this kind of like genetics of IQ and intelligence um, come percolating up to the surface, right? Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that like, for me, you know, I'm... I'm a, I've been a student my, like most of my life, you know, I've been to, you know, all through primary high school, college, my doctorate program. Like I've been taking tests and being measured by tests my whole life. And I am now, you know, as a mom looking at like my own children and what, what their future looks like in the academic world. And it's, you know, I, I, I'm a little disillusioned by the overemphasis on tests, even as someone who like, I did neuropsychological assessment for a long time and, you know, administered these IQ tests, these achievement tests, and they're still very valuable. We need them. We use them diagnostically, even in like psychology a lot. Um, But it's got to be, there's got to be more context. There's got to be, I'm so curious what you found. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I found was that intelligence, there's really a dogma around intelligence out there. Um, 
And the dogma, unfortunately, permeates science with a big capital S, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so um, most areas of science that study intelligence, including genetics, any genetics of intelligence, um, kind of sees intelligence as something that can be scored. It's a, um, a, like a limited amount, right? It's something that you can know through an IQ test. Typically, that's like the, the way that we figure out what somebody's score is, is through an IQ test or some other kind of similar intelligence test um, that, that people fall somewhere along a curve. And that, that means that we're always ranking ourselves and comparing ourselves, right? So, um, so that's like a built-in kind of um, assumption and misassumption of the dogma, right? And that it's um, based on your genetics. Somewhere in there, it's based on, you know, your genetic endowment, whether you won the lottery or you lost the lottery, you know, that your test scores will show. And, um, and so, mm -hmm. you know, there are a lot of intel intelligent scientists who have pushed back against this. Of course, there are people who talk about multiple intelligences. There are people who talk about emotional intelligence. There are people who talk about all these other kinds of intelligence that are equally, if not more important than, um, I, you know, intellectual intelligence. Right. But, um, but still, when we are talking about how you assess or ascertain how intelligent somebody is, we still use IQ tests or intelligence tests that have this kind of built-in assumption of, you know, uh, that we need to compare ourselves to each other, right? And, and we need to rank ourselves yes. according to how, where we fall on that curve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, I'm imagining that, you know, you could speak to this probably better than I can, but this idea of th there's obviously mm -hmm. some combination, right? There's, I'm, I would imagine there's some genetic pre predetermination, some certain facts that are going to determine, you know, executive functioning capacity, mm -hmm. like our prefrontal cortex, what kind of, even our nervous system, which is genetically kind of predicted in some ways, like if you have a very sensitive nervous system and you go into a threat response more easily, um, you know, temperaments, like all these things can impact how we perform mm -hmm. on a test. But does that mean that that test is capturing what it's saying it captures. No, right. And I mean, the thing is that their genetics are, are, are very simple and complicated at the same time. Simple in the sense that our genomes give us the basic architecture of our minds, our neural architecture. Right. And so mm -hmm. they give us this, um, you know, capacity to think, to learn, to, Get, gather information to form memories, to be able to access the memories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For most people, um, you are basically driven by the principle of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity being that your brains are constantly forming neural networks, reworking those networks using what you need from them and pruning them back when you are learning something different and need a different set of, um, you know, resources from your brain. And so essentially we're always growing, we're always developing, we're always changing. So for most people, this is how it works, regardless of how 
high you score on a test. Okay. Right. And so um, the other thing is that um, the, the, the other simple thing is that our genomes code for proteins, but they are regulated by the epigenome. And the epigenomes, this is where it gets more complicated, but in a sense, it is pretty simple as well. The epigenomes basically tell your genome and tell those genes whether to express themselves, whether to turn on or turn off. Um, Most of the time when you have these modifications, when you look at these modifications, you see that the um, epigenomes often have a negative effect by silencing genes. So you can be born with this genome that is, you know, supposedly going to give you the potential to do all of the things you need to do with your body and your mind. And then you're, because of the epigenome, your genes that you need to be on are off and you are therefore not thriving. You're just surviving, right? We inherit these modifications from our ancestors and our parents, essentially, right? Our parents, Mm -hmm. our parents, parents, et cetera. Um, But they are constantly responding to and changing within us in our lifetimes Mm -hmm. um, due to our social environmental inputs, right? So a lot of people, when they talk about epigenomes, they don't talk about intellect. They don't talk about intelligence. They don't talk about the mind as much. They talk about um, things like food, quality of air, um, quality of water, sleep, you know, these kinds of things that are just um, your most basic biological needs. Um, But one of the burgeoning areas of epigenomics, which is the study of, you know, this part of your your genetics, right? And your, your, um, your inheritance and your, what you pass down to your kids, et cetera, is, is stress. So stress is a huge factor on your epigenome. So it, it has a very big impact on whether you are having those genes you need to be on, on, or whether they're in fact being silenced and they're turned off. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the complicated yet simple message that we've learned from studying DNA for the last, you know, 50 years, right? right? It's just that there's, you have basically what you need. It's just, do you have what you need in your environment outside of your body to help your body to live out its potential, right? Mm. That's really, that's so interesting. And like, from what I, like, I'm trying to think, like if I'm a listener and I'm not versed in all of these like scientific terms and mm-hmm. like, I imagine like this could feel like heavy and dense and confusing. And I'm trying to think of a way to kind of make it a really simple kind of illustration of this. Like, and, and I could be totally wrong. So tell me if I'm getting this right. But like, yeah. like in psychology, the way we often think about it is like, I might be genetically predispositioned to anxiety. Mm-hmm. because my parent has an anxiety disorder and their parent perhaps had an anxiety disorder. So I carry this sort of genetic predis- preloading mm-hmm. to feel anxiety. And maybe that means that that manifests in I have at my at birth, my temperament was more um, 
more, you know, I was slow to warm up or I was very overstimulated easily, like in, you know, environmental stimuli mm-hmm. activated my nervous system more. Um, but as I get older, whether or not I actually have an anxiety disorder, I might be pre predeter I might have a genetic preloading to have an anxiety disorder. So that gene could be turned on by perhaps my epigenome. Yes. So um, it's never as simple as, you know, one gene does everything for you and, you know, codes, codes like basically makes you have a disorder. But yeah, so you're based on the inputs from your environment, meaning how your parents treated you or your caregivers, whoever was taking care of you and the environments, the social environments, um, you know, how healthy they were. Um, Also, you know, those other things I mentioned, like sleep and nutrition and um, all of, you know, movement, exercise, all of that, but really like how, how cared for you were tailored to what you needed, right? How Mm -hmm. quality was that care? So attuned, yeah. right? That attunement, yes. the ability of the, not just the caregiver, but the whole environment to the be attuned to your needs. To be attuned. And so that brings us back to this issue of, of testing in schools, you know, which is very just standardized, right? And so, um, and so what happens is you have these, these tests that are supposed to be telling you, you know, this is just how smart you are. This is a number we've, you know, we've, put a number, put a score on you. This is, you know, and, and the scores unfortunately are, are used to not just to say like, this is how smart you seem today based on what you knew so far, but it's actually like somewhat predictive. It's like, how smart do we think this person is? Because we're going to track them for some kind of education or special learning, or, you know, this, like they might, in, um, in the sense of public schools in America, they might get put into a gifted and talented education or gate program, right? A gifted program. They might go to a magnet school. They might go to, you know, or they might be taken into special needs, special education um, programs or classrooms, or they might be taken to out of the school completely and put into an alternative school, right? And so, um the standardized test issue is just that we have these environments that are bearing down on our kids and telling our kids, you know, this is, you know, we're just going to slap this, this curriculum on you that is going to prepare you for these tests. And then the tests are going to tell us, you know, whether we should keep promoting your education in this way or kind of scale it back and put you into this other kind of grouping. And, Really, what we need is an environment, a classroom environment and a social environment that promotes that child's individual needs, right? Mm-hmm. That's helping with that tailoring process we right. were just talking about. Right. And it's a kind of a catch-22 because the way that we are trying to measure what an individual child needs sounds like it might be actually a bit flawed in and of itself which then kind of muddies the whole picture, right? Like, so if I have a kid who, and again, like, I want to be very clear to parents, like, 
there's no problem getting your child assessed, right? It's important. I am a huge proponent of early intervention and getting assessments done. Obviously, from like a diagnostic standpoint, when we're looking at like, do we need to get services? Is there a learning disability? Are there ways that this brain might be neurodivergent? We want to know that stuff. And we definitely use IQ testing as part of that assessment process. Mm -hmm. So the data is important, but at least like, and I've imagine any good neuropsychologist, I'm not a neuropsychologist, but any good neuropsychologist is going to say like, that's one piece of a much more complex picture. And we can't extrapolate any one conclusion from just the IQ test. So, but the problem I find is, you know, in the academic systems, we are using these tests to determine, like you're saying, like achievement, class access, program access, um, whether or not kids are getting into college, whether or not they're getting into certain gifted or talented programs or perhaps special learning. So I think it's like comp- it's a complex system because like we need these assessments to be able to, we don't have any other way of painting the picture right now. But if not used in the context of a much broader, more dynamic like collection of information, right? Like you said, like what is their social functioning? What is their emotional resilience? What is their ability to, you know, keep going when things are difficult? What is their, you know, there, there are just so many other factors that I'm sure matter and may or may not be being considered for certain types of applications of these yeah. tasks. And um, another thing that studying epigenomics and um, and just genetics in general has shown us is that the what what I was saying before about stress that the weight of stress on ourselves, but especially on little minds, you know, on little minds and bodies, is is serious seriously an issue for us and mm-hmm. for them, and so you know, we, you know, beyond thinking like, okay, in certain circumstances, we might need to pull this test out of our arsenal and, you know, apply it to this one person, you know, there, there are ways to actually, um, use tests that are one-on-one and not, we're not talking like sitting everyone down at the beginning and ending of the year, of the school year and set, giving everyone the same test. We're, mm-hmm. we're talking about like something with a, um, you know, a, a psychologist and, um, you know, one-on-one. And so that we're, so that that's one use of tests, right? Mm-hmm. The whole culture of the public school classroom is geared towards eventually teaching them for these tests, teaching to the yeah. test. And, um, and the stress of, of the test taking season is so bad for the whole school. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's just standardized aptitude tests that aren't even like necessarily predictive, but you know, but they are, but they are still also used for tracking, which is disturbing, you know? Right. I think it speaks kind of to like a systemic problem, right? Because, and I do, I'm curious your take on sort of the the social construct of this piece, which is, you know, we as a society, and I think this, these roots go back to like, oh, they go way back, but I think at least to the industrial revolution, but probably further, but this idea of like, we had, in the industrial revolution, there was this like huge need 
for workers, for factory workers, for laborers, for people who could be cogs in a machine and help man manpower this industrial revolution. And the school systems, to my understanding, were developed to create a structure that would produce a lot of this these types of workers. So it was a lot of like following instruction, staying in line, following the protocols, not really stepping outside, not creative thinking, not questioning, not, um, it wasn't really about how do we foster the most creative and intellectual minds. We were like, how do we get people who will follow instructions and learn tasks? And that kind of is the birth of our modern education system. And now in 2023, it has not changed that much, which is super problematic. I know I'm on a soapbox, but this is like something that drives me bonkers. And I think that the throughout all this time, the, the internalization in our society of valuing product, valuing mm -hmm. achievement, valuing grades, valuing scores, and using those outcomes as a pathway to quote unquote success and access is it's so backwards because the reality is we have a bunch of people who really, you know, whether you think that way, like, I mean, it, it, like whether that work, that system works for your particular brain is not guaranteed. Right. So there are people who have brains that don't work in a system like that. And we pathologize that. Mm -hmm. But rea in reality, it's like, well, if we kind of tailored the academic environment to meet the needs of everyone's individual strengths and skills and the way their brains worked and followed their interests, right? Like, what could we build? And I think, you know, I'm, I'm disillusioned by the school system that we have today. And I do think it's a product of this internalized obsession with achievement. Like, the whole kindergarten is the new first grade where mm -hmm. I hate that. Like, why would we want our five-year-old sitting in desks and doing worksheets? That's not the way that the five-year-old brain learns. Yes, I, um, exactly. <laughs> there's, so this idea of neurodivergence is completely contradictory to the reality of neuroplasticity right? Mm -hmm. um, I know that they don't sound like opposite things and they're not quite opposite, but they contradict each other because you are either always changing and growing or you're just a fixed thing, right? A la a test score. And there's and if you are just a fixed thing, then you're somewhere on that curve. Um, the, the whole disturbing history of the tests themselves, I don't know how much people know about this, but IQ tests were actually, the whole idea of an intelligence test was created by people who were part of the, and who were leading the eugenics movement, which was mm -hmm. a movement back in the, um, you know, early part of the 20th century, late part of the 19th century, but, you know, really got going in America in the um, 20th century. And, um, and that movement was a, a combination of people working in science and in politics and leadership. And so, um, so meaning um, there were people who were, you know, famous scientists, people like um, Charles Darwin, Darwin's cousin, um, Francis Galton, the whole movement, it was a movement over, you know, several decades, but the whole movement was 
um, was dedicated to, to, you know, assessing and identifying and naming and branding uh, those who are supposedly uh, inferior, genetically inferior, and in IQ tests were used for this, you know, and, mm -hmm. um, and, and then in the case of the U.S., sterilizing, incarcerating, and in some cases, exterminating. And in the case of Germany and other parts of Europe, exterminating, right? And yes. so, like, um, it's a terrible, terrible even term, you know, but it's, it's the reality. It was genocide. It was, it was a tool, the IQ tests um, or the intelligence tests, which, you know, later became IQ tests and then um, or were replaced by like IQ tests. And then the IQ tests themselves thereafter were used by people who are part of this eugenics movement to identify people to commit these horrible crimes of humanity against. Right. right? And so, um, so that's the, the history of the tests. Now fast forward to today and the tests measure something very important that people also might or might not know um, out there, which is that they measure social privilege. So they are a really great way to find out how educated your parents were, how educated their parents were, how, um, how wealthy they were, socioeconomic status, um, their race, their gender, right? Like all of these, these aspects of social privilege that are uh, huge kind of axes of inequality in the United States presently, uh, those, all of those kind of inequalities come up in and are reflected by the the curve and the test scores. So in a sense, IQ tests are, and intelligence tests are very, very good at measuring social privilege. And so we have to ask ourselves, is that what we want to be giving to our kids? Do we want to be giving them these tests that are not just identifying people who are more privileged but they're also um, identifying people who are more privileged and then tracking them for a better future. That kind of application towards tracking and towards, um, and, and again, this is that kind of way of, of taking kids aptitude tests and then branding them and saying like, you are, you know, probably going to do better and you probably need, uh, you know, advanced education so we're going to get you started on that now. Right. right. And I think this goes back to what we were saying before, yeah. like what exactly are these tests actually measuring and, and how do we use it as a tool today that may be different from how it was originated? Because the reality is, is a tool is a tool, right? If you, if you create a hammer to bludgeon someone mm -hmm. and you use it to bludgeon someone, that's a problem. But if you take that hammer and you say, oh my God, I can bang a nail into this. I could build an entire house. Mm -hmm. The tool itself, the hammer then can become something very useful and very effective at, at creating good. Mm -hmm. So what I'm like really curious, like we live in the system. We use standardized tests for everything. They have a really complicated and terrible history and they can be used as a tool to continue to diminish um, 
like diversity diminish, you know, access to services and access to resources um, to separate and segment people, or they can be used as a tool to be probably, in my opinion, necessarily part of a much more complex system of measurement. But like we use them. Our kids are stuck in this system right now until we can revamp and revitalize the American public education system until we can do that. One, like I suppose on like a more like in, you know, on a policy level, on a, in this research, like the people making the decisions, how do we, how do we sort of structurally change that? But then also as parents, as someone who just, I send my kid to public school, they have their regents exams, they have their aptitude tests. I know my teachers, my kids' teachers are under tremendous pressure um, to teach to the tests and not to necessarily create a learning environment that meets the needs of the classroom and that fosters like a love of learning and creative thought and intrinsic motivation. Like this is the reality. Mm -hmm. What do we do as parents inside of it to make the most of the situation and to support our children's education inside the classroom, but perhaps also outside of the classroom and then perhaps then my net, my follow-up question is like more systemically, like as the researchers, as the clinicians, as the people creating these tests and administering these tests, what can we do to shift this as well? Yeah, I think that the first thing is as parents, I, um, my, my husband and I are making the same decisions now because our kids will be, you know, slated for testing in the next couple of years. And so we... I personally am going to have my my kids abstain from testing, mm-hmm. and you can do that now, which Amazing. is something that you couldn't do before. So I think that that's you know one thing that I personally am going to do. Everybody is going to have their own way of dealing with test taking time and testing season, and but as parents, we also have to be ready to advocate for our kids and to step in there and say. You know, if if our kids are, if we get this sense that our kids are being negatively affected by um, the the testing culture, mm-hmm. um, to say something to our to the teachers, and you know that takes, of course, time. It takes right. energy. It takes time is money. It takes money. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a lot to, right. to do that and and become an advocate for your kid. But I think right. that. Um, I think that many of your listeners are already thinking about being an advocate or are already an advocate for their kids. And so, um, so yeah, and I have talked about testing already with my kids kindergarten teacher and I probably started having that conversation about a month in. And I know it sounds presumptuous, but it's like, I'm an educator too. And we have standard standardized tests on my end as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what we should do as professionals, if you are some kind of an expert and you have some kind of relationship to tests, think about how we're using them. Think about when it, you know, an, an intelligence test should be like the last, last, last resort. There should be so many other types of tests and cognitive tests that you would use, especially if you're just trying to identify a learning disability, for example, it's like mm-hmm. intelligence tests are just actually giving you such a rough assessment of what's going on. Right. So, right. um, and again, this is all like, it takes time and money and all of, you know, 
But um, the other thing is on my end, personally, I have two things that I do, being that I'm in higher education. I'm a professor and so um, and a, at a giant public university. So one thing is that I always work to infuse my curriculum and any kind of, you know, all the lecturing I do, all the public speaking I do, I try to make sure that some of it is devoted to um, criticizing and looking for a better way forward and fostering a conversation about a better way forward amongst the communities of experts, right? Um, and amongst my students. Another thing that I've done in my in the schools that I've worked in um, is I have fought to, um, in a sense, get rid of things like the GRE, the SATs, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. In the p- pandemic, a lot of schools, I'd say, I don't know actually how many school- schools did this, but many, many schools, including the schools I was affiliated with, um, they got rid of temporarily, got rid of the GRE, the SATs, yeah. right? Because And nothing fell knew. apart. Our world and didn't the, dissolve. Kids still went to college and they so, got into places where they can thrive. Like, I think we have this fear that if we got rid of standardized testing, yeah. what would we use then to figure out who's good at what? And I think what we don't realize is that students will show us. Exactly. Students will show us what they are good at and interested in if we allow them yeah, the the freedom to show us their interests and to pursue their interests. And, you know, I love the Reggio Amelia model of, of, of education, which is child-led learning. And the, the curriculum is literally developed over the course of the year based on what the kids are showing interest in. And the whole idea is to foster this intrinsic interest and and love of learning and give children agency to to sort of pursue things. And the idea is we embed the curriculum inside of their interests. Not everybody gets to do that. In fact, most people don't. And I think it's so important for me to help parents who do, who, who are navigating the public school system and the standard American education system to be able to work within that space as well. And I think one of the most important things that we can do, in addition to all the things you listed, which is advocating for your child at school, finding out how you can opt out of testing if that's something that you would choose to do, or even just having a conversation with your child's um, school and or teacher on like how that we can put tests into a context for our kids. How do we help them understand this is one piece and it's just a, you know, lower the pressure, lower the stakes for the kids around those tests, help them be educated consumers of what these tests are actually measuring and that your life is not going to ride or die on this test and you do it and then we move on. But also outside of school, right, in the home, one of the things that I always tell parents to do is to take a real hard look at your personal relationship and personal belief system around the value of achievement. Because I think that we are a bit indoctrinated and a bit um, sort of trained to value achievement above all else. And I think when we really get down to it, we're like, what are our real values? Why is achievement important to us? What I think most people end up saying is, well, I want my child to, you know, be happy and be interested in things and want to pursue great stuff and have access to like, you know, the best schools and the best colleges and the best jobs. And so they can be happy, right? So they can do the things they want to do. And what I really think we need to remember is if we just focus on achievement, 
and drive every decision we make based off of that. We're missing the thing that actually often leads to this like internal drive to achieve. And that's like self-actualization, right? So if we actually say achievement will follow, I'm not going to focus on achievement. I'm going to focus on having my child be aware of who they are and what they're interested in and have the skills to pursue with some resilience the things that are intriguing to them, right? If they fail at something and they want to quit, well, they're not going to achieve much, right? If So it's like, how do we help build up the things that actually, once you establish them, become the foundation for achievement? Like achievement's the byproduct, actually, not the goal. So I often tell parents, you know, it's small things, right? Like focusing on process instead of product, right? So when you're giving your kids praise, saying, instead of saying like, good job, or that's so beautiful, um, or you got it right to being like, oh, wow, that must have felt so good to finish. Or how did you decide all of the things that went into that, that, that drawing that you did? Like what made, what were you thinking about? Or why did you pick those colors? Or, oh man, you didn't, you guys didn't win the game. What was your favorite part about playing it? You know, like how much fun was it to be on that team with those friends? And it really, oh, wasn't it nice to have them to come together after you guys didn't win to be able to feel connected to them or whatever. I'm like, but this idea that we are focusing on the process, the experience of things, and that if we focus on that, that's what we value, right? If we always focus on the outcome, what was the grade? How well did you do? we are telling our kids that's what we focus on. That's what matters. And so I think these little shifts of like being more curious and having a focus on experiential components of how something occurs and gets accomplished, that is going to lead to a lot more probably achievement down the road. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And this is why in Rethinking Intelligence, I kind of advance this new definition of intelligence or an alternative. It's not, you know, completely novel to think this way, but instead of thinking of intelligence as this limited quantity fixed score, you only rank so high or like, you know, congratulations, you're a winner. Sorry, you're a loser. Um, just thinking of intelligence and your kids' intelligence as, as awareness, as their ability to, learn from the environment because they can learn from the environment. Mm -hmm. Are we facilitating them to enjoy their environment, learn from what is around them? Are we helping them to see that that's really all that matters? And they will do that naturally. In fact, most of the time we stand in the way of that, you know? So it's, it's like, can we give them that feeling of, it is a process. Intelligence itself is a process. It's not mm-hmm. a score. You know, it's, not a, it's, it's, yeah, a it's not a product and you weren't just born a certain way. And so, you know, that's great for right. you or that sucks for you. You know, it's like, yeah. it's not, a, it's not about some outcome like, Oh, you achieved that you finished that you did. No, it's about like, do you, what is, what is your kid doing when they are at home? Like you were saying in the home environment, are they, exploring? Are they asking questions? Are they, you know, picking up a book or a 
you know, piece of cardboard or a, you know, whatever thing that is in front of them and interacting with it, that Mm -hmm. is using their intelligence. You know, it's that teaching them that awareness, that, that enjoyment of the awareness that will definitely lead to lead them to, you know, capitalize on that, that curiosity that burns within them, you know? And I, I just, yeah, I would love for the public school system to do the same thing. And I do see a lot of the, um, the kind of um, private school pedagogy bubbling up in there as well, especially like, in, you know, at the kindergarten level, which is so far what I've experienced, you know, I see that there's a lot of that, that pedagogy, if not ideology of play-based and social emotional yes. learning being the priority yes. and all of that stuff. Um, but there are definitely, you know, ways that we can, uh, you know, step in and, and say to the administrators and say to the teachers, we value this too. Yes. So our voices do matter, right? Like we are not uh, insignificant in shaping things. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, speak up and yeah, I'm so excited about this book. And if people want to learn more about your work or, you know, get a copy of Rethinking Intelligence, how can they find you? Uh, you can go on, well, you can always go on Amazon, but if you want to look, I have a website, drvenabliss.com. And then there's also, uh, a page of course on the publisher's website. So Harper wave, um, an imprint of Harper Collins. So you can go on Harper Collins or Harper wave and you will see rethinking intelligence there. Amazing. We'll put a link to in the show notes. People can find it right here. Um, Thanks so much for coming on. This was so interesting and great talking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. Do you have a question or a suggestion you want me to cover on the podcast? I want to know. Please send me a DM on Instagram at Dr. Sarah Bren or go to my website, drsarahbren.com slash podcast and fill out the question form. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash podcast. Until next week, don't be a stranger. Thank you.